When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is James A. Chamberlain, the author of Undoing Work, Rethinking Community, a critique of the social function of work. In Undoing Work, Chamberlain argues that paid work and the civic duty to perform it substantially undermines freedom and justice. Chamberlain believes that to seize back our time and transform our society, we must abandon the deep-seated view that community is constructed by work, whether paid or not. Focusing on regimes of flexibility and the unconditional basic income, he argues that while both offer prospects for greater freedom and justice, they also incur the risk of shoring up the work society rather than challenging it. To transform the work society, he shows that we must also reconfigure the place of paid work in our lives and rethink the meaning of community at a deeper level. Chamberlain offers a range of strategies that will allow us to uncouple our deepest human values from the notion that worth is generated only through labor. James A. Chamberlain is an associate professor of political science at Mississippi State University, where he specializes in political theory. Chamberlain engages with both the continental and analytic traditions of political philosophy, as well as relevant work in the social sciences and humanities. Building on the work we will discuss today, his current and recent research focuses on migration and borders. James Chamberlain, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, So I'd like to start today by asking you, what got you started on this project? That is, what is your interest in the idea of, um, and I love the phrase, undoing work? Well, the idea of undoing work came later. I have to say that from the beginning. Um, The idea of work as something that I could possibly study, I think, dated back to a graduate course that I took fairly early on in my PhD studies. And... In particular, we were reading the work of different critical theorists who were, um, well, in particular, thinkers like um, Aris Marion Young, Axel Honneth, um, I think Nancy Fraser as well at that time. And they were all looking at this issue of recognition and redistribution. And they just had some really fascinating kind of sociologically informed but critical takes on work and employment and it was something that I think I had never in my academic studies up to that point really been able to explore but at the same time it was something that I was you know I think in my personal life really fascinated by for a long time Um, so you know as many people watching our parents um, in their 
professions and in their field of work and changing, you know, as circumstances change. Um, growing up in Britain, where there's quite a strong um, awareness of class and the way work kind of plays into that. Um, I was It was just something that was always there in the background and, and interesting to me. So I think when I had the opportunity to actually read some of these um, very inspirational, for me at least, studies um, in political theory, I saw, saw there was this opening, an opportunity um, to, to, to delve into it further. Of course, as well, um, this is sort of after the 2008 financial collapse. And so there's a lot more attention at that time, I think, than had been for the few years before, at least for, for the decades before, on you know these questions that traditionally are sort of centered around the economy, like work. Um, and, and but a sort of growing interest in in the political, the philosophical, the cultural aspects of that as well. So it sort of wasn't only seen as an economic issue at that time, I think. And, and I was able to, I suppose, in a sense, sort of ride the wave of that movement um, that was developing at that time. It, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if, if you find this, but um, I'm, I'm teaching a course in social movements right now. And while most of the students are reasonably familiar with, you know, social movements around civil rights and, and feminism, they seem almost, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to say, uh, uh, just almost without any background in challenges to work and labor. Like the labor movement almost doesn't factor into into their thinking at all. No, I think that's true. I, I mean... I haven't studied the, you know, the school curriculums um, on those issues to know for sure. But my sense in what I've read is that, you know, the labor movement historically has been somewhat marginalized from secondary education compared with, you know, the civil rights movement. And obviously both are extremely important to the history of this country and and around the world as well. Um, In some ways, I think it's perhaps easier to present a fairly sanitized version of the civil rights movement um, that, in a sense, you know, sees it as something in the past that, you know, sort of delivered the United States from a bad history and brings us to a a sort of, you know, reconciled state of justice and equality now. And so it's possible to study that in a way that, or to present that in a way that perhaps doesn't challenge the status quo that much. Whereas I think the labor movement, um, you know, if you start delving into that, um, you know, I, I think perhaps there are political interests in in sort of suppressing uh, the understanding of the history of that. Yeah, and I think even and even on a more fundamental level, and I think this is one of the things I appreciate about your work, is that we don't want to think too hard about work generally. Mm, mm. Like, like it, yeah. it concerns us at all times, but but sort of looking at it as a social structure is something that it's almost like we prefer to ignore. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it like that, I suppose. But, um, you know, I, when I when I think about it and I talk to people, I think, you know, and this shows how really deeply ingrained the ideology of work is, but the idea that work is inevitable, that we just have to do it, that we have to sort of grin and bear it, um, 
you know that that would that, that that would suggest that then why think about it right i mean we don't want to think about it because it's something we have to do or it's something we assume we have to do yeah i think that's right and, and again so this leads us to uh i think the first chapter of your book where you sketch out the ideology of work um, I'm especially interested here in what you describe as the four ways that the work ethic constrains the freedom of individuals to make choices regarding the conduct of their lives. Um, could you walk us through, if not all four, at least some of those uh, different ways that the work ethic constrains us? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, I may not give you a perfect summary of what I wrote in the book because I, you know, the, the book came out in 2018 actually. So it's, it's been a while since I wrote it. Um, but I think, um, you know, one aspect concerns just the sheer amount of time that we spend working. So, you know, I remember towards the end of the book, um, you know, I've got a, a quote from an activist in France who makes a point that would apply to people almost anywhere, which is, you know, how are you supposed to be a good citizen? How are you supposed to be involved in, you know, the community outside of your paid employment if you're working, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week? Um, so there's that aspect um, just in terms of the amount of time that it takes up. There's also, um, I think, the fact that obviously we don't really have a choice, most of us, about whether we engage in paid work. And so on that sort of fundamental level, we're structurally constrained to engage in labor and obviously a lot of what you know we we hope as individuals and a lot of what young people are aspiring to is less unattractive or more attractive forms of labor right um, and we do obviously have a choice about who we sell our labor to but the fact of having to have a job um, is pretty unavoidable within our current work society um, <clears throat> Another factor is that obviously, depending on the job that you actually have, you know, there are various incursions on freedom that you face within the workplace. Um, so it could be restrictions on forming a union, it could be retaliations um, that are taken against you if you are trying to organize a union. Um, it could be things like restrictions on taking bathroom breaks. Um, so there are all kinds of incursions on freedom within the actual experience of work um so i think that probably i think that may be three of the the four i'm just trying to look <laughs> if there's a fourth one um um no, I, I think that gives us pretty good sense of, yeah. of what's of what's going on here and again you the, the idea i think especially of the incursions that work makes on our personal lives mm -hmm. um, has a great deal of resonance today as well Especially with, you know, we're seeing stories about, you know, uh, Amazon drivers who are carrying around bottles because they can't take a, a stop for a restroom break. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think the other thing, actually, that I would, that I would mention is, is a bit more sort of philosophical. And that is that just because um, kind of this idea that we need to be engaged in paid work. And that a good society is one that does that, you know, provides that to the maximal extent possible. Because we're so deeply um, socialized into that sort of belief, into that ideology of work, there's a form of freedom that we lose, which is the ability to try and actually imagine alternatives. So it's um, almost like, you know, our, our intellectual freedom is diminished as a result of the ideology of work. It sort of... Um, 
closes down more creative ways of thinking about social life, right? Collective existence, basically. Yeah, so, and that kind of takes us to the discussion of the next chapter, where you go on to describe what you label the work society. Mm -hmm. um, what do we mean by this phrase, and how does it play into the, the larger argument that you make about the role of work in the lives of workers? So the basic idea of the work society, and it's not one that I, you know, it's not a term that I've coined. There are others that use this as well that I build on, and then subsequent to this book as well. Um, but it's just the idea that society is fundamentally ordered around paid work, such that the state has an active responsibility in trying to, you know, promote employment. Um, whether it actually succeeds in full employment is obviously a different matter and whether that's a good thing or not, we can talk about. But the idea that, um, you know, generally um, employment is the norm and that other, you know, ways of spending your time, especially if you're of working age, um, are perversions of that, basically, right? That they're deviations from that. So um, obviously... We make certain limited exceptions for people, um, although even they, I think, suffer from this. So, for example, you know, disabled people, severely disabled people who cannot um, find paid employment, on the one hand, they're somewhat exempted from this expectation, I think, and there's varying degrees of social support given to them, depending on which country you're talking about in terms of its welfare provisions. But on the other hand, the very fact that we organize society so much around paid work, meaning that... Um, so many of our opportunities to engage in social cooperation and receive social esteem for our activities. Because of that, of course, if you're unable to work for whatever reason, then you miss out on all of that as well. So even if the expectation isn't so much placed on you as an individual to do work because of your personal circumstances, uh, because work is so organized, uh, because society, excuse me, is so organized around work, kind of the opportunities that you would have to develop your capabilities, to engage in meaningful activities are fairly limited. And, and it's interesting, even, even in addition to that, and you make this point, I think, is there's a psych sort of psychological investment in your identity through work. Um, I'm, I'm getting uh, dangerously close to retirement age and have been contemplating, right, what happens to me after I stop calling myself professor. Um, and, and I, you know, I have to tell you that, that, that the idea, and, and I think this is kind of where the ideology seeps into the bones a little bit, um, is almost deeply frightening. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that got me thinking about this, and I think that I mentioned uh, in the first chapter of the book is this idea of, you know, you meet someone and you tell them your name. And then one of the first things invariably that comes up, although this is somewhat culturally specific, but I think, you know, in certainly sort of Northern European, Western European, you know, American context, North American context, you know, one of the first things that comes up is what do you do, meaning what is your job? Right. So it just is a fundamental part of so many people's identities. Um, and then, of course, you know, not only do we get used to identifying with this or that job, but if you get to retirement, the question is not only what do you call yourself, um, but also what are you going to do? Right. And if you've spent your sort of, you know, the years after you finish education and up to your 60s, 70s, you know, working 
40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, the likelihood is you actually haven't had a lot of time to develop other interests, to, you know, develop other skills and things like that. And so for some people that can be, you know, retirement can be this great opportunity to kind of rediscover, reconnect these these things, these passions that you may have had to put on the back burner. But for other people, it's it's, it's almost like a, a form of death, right? Because it's like they don't have anything to do. Yeah, I, I really, the, and, and I think, uh, I don't remember what chapter you talk about this, but um, you, you sort of offer an offhand list of activities that work gets in the way of pursuing. And uh, one of the ones that you mentioned is riding a bike. And, and honestly, when, when I think about retirement, that's the only image that comes into my head. It is is of me riding a bike down some place in northern Michigan where, where I'm talking to you from. Right. I mean, I put that in there because I love cycling. Um, and, you know, I have to confess that being a professor has enabled me a degree of flexibility, which is one of the other things that I talk about in the book, that allows me to, I think, probably do more cycling than I would in many other professions with a more sort of rigid um, time schedule. But certainly, if you think about it, you know, if one were to completely devote oneself to paid employment, um, to the detriment of one's health, then, you know, you could reach the point of retirement where, you know, you think, great, now I've got time to ride my bike. Well, maybe not. Maybe, you know, you're too unhealthy at that point to be able to do it. Yeah, and I think that happens to folks. Uh, and so let's talk about flexibility. Uh, one of the hallmarks of contemporary labor is that it has become increasingly flexible. Uh, indeed, we could almost say that it has become uh, precariously flexible. Um, and in the third chapter, you tackle this idea of flexibility. And I must say, you do it in a more balanced and nuanced way than I've often seen done. Um, in what ways do you see flexibility both contributing to and detracting from the freedom of people to control their work lives? Well, I mean, I think when I was beginning to think about this, I actually was focusing almost exclusively on the ways that it detracts um, from freedom. I think partly because I was feeling really negative <laughs> and partly because I probably um, wanted to make an argument that seemed sort of counterintuitive. So not necessarily out of the most honest reasons or the most, you know, sort of intellectually honest reasons. Um, and that's why I started to try to engage a bit more with some of the things that could be really positive about it. Um, because I realized, okay, yes, there is an interesting argument about the ways that flexibility can be you know, almost used to get people to buy into the idea of of the work society, right? Because it's sort of this, it seems like a good thing, but then when you look at it more closely, it maybe isn't so good. But I think, honestly, that there are some things about it that can be very positive. So, I mean, in terms of when I actually started analyzing literature, sociological literature on flexibility and looking at, you know, um, studies of how it gets actually used within workplaces um, you know it came it became clear to me that there are big differences between forms of flexibility that are devised to help management um, reduce their costs basically um, and forms of flexibility that on some level enhance individual workers autonomy and so I think the cost cutting kinds of flexibility, those include things like zero hours contracts, um, 
you know, being categorized as um, self-employed, for example, instead of actually having a, a proper contract um, as an employee. Um, these are things that are driven by management's desire to cut costs and to, you know, not take responsibility for employees. Um, and then in the chapter, I also talk about the idea of a, you know, on a sort of macro social um, labor market level, the idea of flexibility um, as a kind of anti-union move. So creating more flexible um, workplaces has often meant trying to reduce the power of collective bargaining, because that in the eyes of opponents of unions is, you know, really what gets in the way of companies being nimble and agile. These are words that, you know, sort of mean the same thing as flexible um, and, and, and create these rigidities that end up lowering their, their profit. So all of those are things that I think, you know, people are quite familiar with in some ways and get sold as flexibility and flexibility is usually seen as this good thing, I think, as a word, um, you know, there are not too many, I think, or any connotations of flexibility that have a negative uh, sense to them. Um, did you have a question or should I no, go? No, go right no, no, keep going. Yeah. So the, but then obviously there's the positive sides, which I think we're, we're seeing more and more of, um, you know, especially with the pandemic and the, the, the rise, um, you know, albeit for some people temporary at that time, but for some, you know, it's continued since then of homeworking, of, um, you know, setting your own schedule a little bit more and being able to work in places that allow you to perhaps save time um, in commuting, you know, if you're able to work from home, maybe balance your other commitments a little bit more easily as well with childcare or other care that you might have to do. Um, you know, so I think, you know, controlling your schedule, controlling where you get to work, um, even being able to control the amount of time that you work. Um, so having an option about, you know, is it going to be full-time work? Is it going to be part-time? Maybe it's something in between. Um, these are all things that I think can be very empowering to workers. So I'm especially interested in here in what you call the the construction of the flexible worker. And there's an especially vivid rendering of this idea on page 58 of your book. I was wondering if we could take a break here and say and ask you to read uh, the the passage that begins in the kaleidoscope of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. In the kaleidoscope of neoliberalism, corporations appear as persons, persons appear as corporations, and in the process, the viewer risks losing sight of the vast power imbalances and antagonisms between the two. Although the ideology and policies of labor market flexibility capitalize on the deeply held value of individualism, they attack collectives in a selective manner, targeting unions and some of the regulatory powers of the state, while leaving intact and even augmenting the power of employers, including corporations and public bodies as in the case of Wisconsin. In such an environment, individuals may be quote-unquote liberated from unions in the state, but they are arguably more vulnerable than ever to the vicissitudes of capital and the market, given their diminished collective protections and voice. So there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. Um, I, again, I think that's a, a particularly uh, a 
well-rendered description of contemporary working conditions. Um, what happens to people when they become, I, don't, I think, I don't remember where this phrase comes from, the brand called you? What happens to people? That's a good question. Um, I think part of what I'm arguing here is drawn from this Foucauldian idea of neoliberalism, effectively um, promoting this kind of self-entrepreneurialism. And so, you know, we see ourselves as our own or entrepreneurs of ourselves, meaning that we see ourselves as having a kind of capital, human capital, as it's often called, that we're trying to maximize. And I think, you know, this starts pretty early, actually, um, because of the fact that students um, very often have to take out debt to or take out loans to to fund higher education. And because higher education itself, I think, is very often sold as, you know, essentially job training, um, you know, I think a lot of the time students are thinking about how to boost their employability, what are they going to do after they graduate so they can pay off the debt they've had to take out to fund their studies. Um, And so they're thinking about, you know, all these things like internships and, you know, building their CVs. So they're already kind of thinking about themselves as this kind of commodity that they're going to have to sell at some point. So I think that happens to us. Um, Once you have a job, and this is, again, perhaps one of the less sort of visible, or at least at the time, it seemed to me less visible, although I think since then, there's been growing awareness for this issue, is that, you know, depending on what kind of job, in sort of higher skilled, more seemingly desirable jobs, there's a kind of flexibility that comes with, you know, an expectation that you're constantly um, available for communication. So you're always on, you've got your smartphone with you, you're expected to reply to emails at all times. Right. And I know that in Europe, there's been a pushback against that to um, sort of limit the expectation from employers that their employees do respond outside of particular hours, because in some companies, you know, you're expected to reply within hours to, to a message, no matter when it's sent. Um, so there is this idea of, you know, never really being off the clock, right, um, which in my own personal experience of looking at my parents, my father had his own small business for many years, and then later in life, stopped that and got a job. And, you know, his experience of that was, you know, he could be off the clock when he had a job. But if you have a business, it's very difficult to be off the clock. But of course, in this new form of relation to work, many people don't have a business, but they see themselves as their own business. And so in a sense, suffer from the same condition of like self-employment, that you're never quite off the job. You're always thinking about work. You're always even thinking about getting another job, a better job, or what you think might be a better job, right? And so it's, you know, it's the networking, it's looking for new jobs, it's honing your CV and all those types of things. Uh, Even reading self-help manuals to try and improve your employability. Um, So that's just another way, in fact, then that if not your actual paid job, then at least the idea of work encroaches more and more into your life. Yeah, and and again, you you uh, this this passage also highlights the the real damage that that uh, way of thinking does to uh, imagining collective responses to some of these problems. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and I think the second part of what I read, you know, really draws out the idea that we are attached to the idea of flexibility, not with 
without good reason, I think, because it does seem to convey this idea of individual empowerment. And it can be, as I've said, a definite form of individual empowerment. But of course, um, the, 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 the sort of individualism that we get under neoliberalism um, is, you know, is brought about by attacking collectives of a very specific kind. You know, we have unions and the state being targeted for uh, a reduction in their powers, yet corporations um, are left, you know, stronger than ever, basically, as a result of this. So, um, you know, that side of things gets missed, I think. So... One of the more commonly cited solutions to some of the the crueler deprivations of the work society is the idea of the universal basic income, or UBI. Uh, For instance, Milton Freeman has argued for a negative income tax, and and Martin Luther King uh, offered the idea of a subsistence cash payment. In the the chapter of your book, you analyze some of the arguments for UBI and suggest, and and correct me if I'm understand if I'm not understanding this correctly, that while the UBI may alleviate some of the more dire consequences of the maldistribution of work, that if it is not structured correctly, it will fail as a way to challenge the ideology of work. Yeah, that's exactly the argument. I mean, I think the danger that I see, well, there are at least two dangers of it. One is that the level of basic income is set such that it really doesn't alleviate the need for people to engage in paid work at all. And in fact, there's you know some arguments around the way that this could even be used basically as a way to, um, you know, for corporations to avoid having to increase wages, right? So it's almost like the state is subsidizing um, these corporations paying low wages. Um, but I think what, what you're getting at with what you were just saying is something else, and that is this idea that um, somehow if we do not change the way we think about work and the way we attach work to social recognition, then the danger is that although we may have less material need to engage in paid work as a result of a, a UBI, we still are chasing after work all the time and we're still promoting it as a collective good that you know a, a good society needs to be able to provide for people and so then i think many of the same problems that identified at the beginning in terms of freedom and justice would still apply yeah and, and again it sort of comes back to that problem that i was talking about before about what happens to you post retirement right it's it's that recognition by others of um you know your place in the paid workforce sort of establishes you as a as a member of society and and as a part of the hierarchy of society yeah exactly and i think i should say too that i mean what's interesting about ubi is that i think when people first hear it they think oh well, that's just socialism, right? Paying people money to not necessarily do anything in particular. That's just a kind of leftist idea. Um, As you've said, there were people across the political spectrum who have supported this, but actually there's a very strong um, line of argument up to the present from the left that also criticizes UBI. And one of the things that, one of the reasons for that, I think, is precisely because portions of the left are still very attached to this kind of ideology of work, frankly, Um, and the idea that a community needs to be based around work. So they see this provision of, you know, unconditional basic income as a a threat to that and something that really wouldn't work. 
Um, I think so. So I think that's that. That's another sort of interesting thing is that it it, it isn't an unambiguously leftist idea. Is, is basically what I'm saying. And I think the other thing I was just going to say, and I kind of forgot what I was going to say. So if I can add it, is um, of course if you're talking about providing an income, you're talking about providing uh, money for people to buy things that they need. So one of the other sort of leftist criticisms of this is that it doesn't necessarily transform the commodity economy. Um, because what it really does is just provide people with an alternative income with which they, they can go out and buy things. Um, and so I think after I wrote the book more recently, I've become aware of um, not unconditional basic income, but unconditional basic services. So that would be, um, again, things that sometimes already exist, um, like, you know, free education, for example, but it could also be, you know, free housing, free transportation. But instead of... Um, people accessing them by paying money for them um they're just available free as a right of citizenship or as a right to the person who lives in the place that they're you know trying to access it so i think that's a sort of another variant of this general idea that i don't get into in the book but which i think is still an important um, part of it so in the fifth chapter you come to what i take to be the heart of your argument and it's here where you attempt to imagine what I think we've already said is, is almost unimaginable. What would society or even community look like in the absence of work to structure it? Tell us a little bit about what you uh, think this community beyond what shape this community beyond work would have. Yeah, and I should say really from the outset, although it might be obvious to people, um, I'm not sure if it is, that. In talking about life or community beyond work, we're, we're not talking, or I'm not talking about some kind of fully automated society where no one actually has to do any work. Um, for various reasons, I think that would actually be a bad thing. Um, I think it's not that we're not doing work, it's how we think about work, and it's how we reward work, and how we... Um, you know, basically give social <clears throat> rewards to people who do or do not do different kinds of work. So that's the basic idea of it, I think, is that we don't, instead of in our current society, work essentially being reduced to paid employment, I think we need to go beyond that and and, and actually properly recognize the social contributions of a lot of unpaid labor. But even beyond that, really try not to impose any particular definition of what counts as work or try and imagine a community in which you don't have to prove your worth based on the work that you do, however that's defined. And that's that's what's, I think, quite difficult to imagine, just because we do think of community so much in terms of cooperation. And of course, the word cooperation actually has a connotation of work built into it. Yeah, and, and even the way you, when when we think about community, I'm even thinking of you know lessons that we get in childhood. Um, the, the old uh, I, you're from Britain. I don't know if you if you got Sesame Street, but the the whole these are the people in your neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and there's the the police officer and all of the you know, and it's all defined by by work. Absolutely, and and again, I'm not saying that as a society we don't have needs, material needs, emotional needs, um, 
environmental needs that we all need to address through work. The question is, how do we reward that? Do we pay people for that? And if we do that, obviously, then we're um, essentially committing to a form of society in which, um, unless we have a very, very generous UBI, it's likely that people's needs are going to go unmet if they're doing work that isn't highly enough paid. Um, And do we expect that people, you know, substantially devote themselves to any particular form of work, for example? The book concludes by you pointing to some ways forward toward achieving what you've set out in the earlier chapters. So how do we get to the post-work community or perhaps more to the point, achieve a post-work future? I think it's very hard, um, obviously, given how you know deep-seated it is within individual and collective mindsets um, and just in terms of also social structures. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about more recently is, and I mentioned this in the book a little bit, is the connections between capitalism and the work society. And I think, to some extent, contemporary capitalism feeds on the work society. Um, So if we're trying to go beyond it, I think we're going to have to reckon directly with capitalism. And that, again, I think is becoming more and more, or perhaps has become more and more, possible conceptually since 2008, I would say, um, since the COVID pandemic, even, I think. Um, But it's a major task. Um, So I think, you know, that that addressing capitalism is a a pressing issue um, here. But I think, again, I don't write about this too much in the book. But, you know, it's not just capitalist societies that are work societies, it's many other alternative economies, the socialist, uh, state socialist uh, regimes, you know, these were also work societies. And so I think the way that we imagine um, alternatives to capitalism as well needs to break out of that mold. So uh, James Chamberlain, thanks again for taking the time to talk today and really for this provocative contribution to, and again, I I think this whole idea of thinking about work is, is one of the most crucial problems facing us today. Um, and at the risk of, uh, of asking for more work, I'd like to ask, uh, what are you working on next? I'd love to. Um, well, from around the time that this came out to the present, I've actually been working on another book, which I'm hoping to finish very soon, um, titled Living Through Capitalism. And the title of it I think reflects the fact that although I started it before the pandemic, um, I was, you know, in the middle of it, or perhaps looking back, not the middle of it now, um, in 2020, um, and starting to really think about the ways in which capitalism uses and abuses life, and thinking about sort of the interdependencies between the environmental crisis um, that capitalism is driving, health crises that again, capitalism is um, inflicting on people. Um, and uh, also sort of the, the the effects of living in capitalism on our opportunities to living a good life um, in a more sort of ethical sense. So that's um, a lot of what I've been doing. And what's interesting to me about coming back to preparing for this conversation today is that I actually end the book with some questions that this current book actually 
almost directly takes up. Um, and so I talk about sort of exploring the connections in, in, the, in the conclusion. So this book that we've been talking about, I, I talk about exploring the connections between the work society and the environmental crisis. And actually, that I think is a major aspect here. Um, you know, in, in my current book project, I'm talking about the work society and also productivism, this idea that societies need to be producing, um, we need to be growing economically, right? And I think that um, has an incredibly negative environmental impact. And on top of that, we're looking at, um, you know, I think many ways that being committed, whether individually you actually support it or not, but spending a lot of your time working has these negative environmental impacts, whether it's because of the things that you make that often are frankly superfluous to a to a good life um whether it's through the way that you get to work whether it's through you know the fact that you're so busy working that you have to buy things that are convenient that then probably you know environmentally harmful all of those things you know i think that work the influence of work kind of gets in the way of a more ecologically sustainable way of life and, and and you make this point that that really we're not necessarily even talking about when you when you make that observation we're not really even talking about something that's necessarily anti-capitalist but um, it, it's it's that sort of idea of productivism that really cuts across uh, both capitalism and and socialist ways of organizing economies. Yeah, and so this is where um, you know the there's a there's a sort of growing interest in degrowth. Um, and even in degrowth communism, which I've been particularly interested in, and then there's the work of a Japanese philosopher, um, I forget his first name, but Sato is his last name, and he's done some really fascinating uh, work on Marx, showing how as Marx's um, life progressed and as his interests kind of matured, he actually, in Sato's interpretation, moves towards um, advocating a kind of degrowth communism, um, which is so much against the sort of orthodoxy of Marxism that really, uh, at least throughout the 20th century, saw the way to overcome capitalism as, um, you know, just embracing the development of productive forces. And that is something that, in his account at least, Marx saw the problems with uh, in his later work. But certainly we don't need, you know, the late Marx to tell us that there are problems with trying to do that now as well um, as we're, you know, witnessing day to day the effects of the climate crisis. Yeah, it's hard to miss. And although it's still interesting that, that we can go back to to Marx and, and find those observations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really I'm really thinking about um, I have a, a concept of communities of life um, and what what it would look like to establish these kind of communities of life as multi-species um, communities. Um, but of course, in that also, these are not work societies, right? And I think you know, that's another interesting aspect to this, that um, you know, in work societies, we value people who work, who earn money. But of course, animals don't earn money, right? They're exploited in very terrible ways. They don't earn money. And because of that way that we value things, you know, their worth sort of falls out of the equation as well. Well, I will look forward to seeing that once it becomes available. I hope that you will share it with us here at the New Books Network. I'd love to, yeah. Uh, Once again, thank you for your time today. I know this is a busy time of year for all of us in academia. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Thank you so much.
Once again, my guest today has been James A. Chamberlain, the author of Undoing Work, Rethinking Community, a critique of the social function of work from ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.